And as you're seated, I encourage you to turn back to the back of your Bible to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12 will begin in verse 7. If you're at home, pull that afghan away so you can get to your Bible, alright? And uh, I know you're warm, but let's dig into God's Word together into a passage of Scripture that is not necessarily easily understood at first glance, but I think is becomes more obvious as we just take it um, slowly and understand it as God would have us dig in and understand it. Let's open in prayer, and then we'll look at this passage together. Gracious Father, Lord, we come before you now, and we ask that we would... Submit to you and to your word and to your spirit. That God, you would reveal yourself to us. That as we look at some dark things, that we would see that those are not our focus. But rather, the glorious, sovereign, perfect, and holy King of the universe continues to be our hope and will have the last word. And God, may that be what we rest in and hope in. And may that drive how we live our lives in this present age. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You and I live in the midst of a clash of two kingdoms. And every human lives as a subject of one of these two kingdoms. We live as either subjects of the kingdom of this age, ruled by Satan, or we live as subjects submitting to King Jesus. And as we understand that, it helps us then as we look at this passage today. Since the Garden of Eden, a spiritual war has been waged, both seen and unseen, right? We're going to see this morning that the the curtains are going to be pulled back a bit. And we're going to see sort of behind the scenes. The message that we're going to see through the rest of Revelation is, in fact, is that the war is real. It's not imaginary. And that the effects of the warfare between the followers of Christ and and the principalities and the powers of the air is not going to be eternal. So it's real, but it's not eternal. It's not going to go on forever. And that's good news. That's great news. If, in fact, you understand it in light of who's going to win, right? And how it will be brought to a close. We must recognize that the reality of both the war and the ultimate outcome are important for how we live in this present age. But we must place our focus on submitting to Jesus Christ and hoping in Christ, not becoming obsessed with devils and demons and forces. And for some, I think for all of us, that's a struggle. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his book, Screwtape Letters. There are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, to think they're not real. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased 
with both heirs. See, the end is coming. The end is coming and Satan and his demons will be defeated. In fact, as Dr. Grant Osborne puts it, Armageddon has been on the horizon since Eden. And in the end, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Right? We saw that back in Revelation chapter 11 with the enthronement of Jesus Christ. Christ ascended his throne and there was great celebration in heaven. Well, in Revelation 12, 1 through 6, which Chris covered last week, it revealed two great signs in which we saw Satan's efforts to dethrone Jesus and to destroy God's work. And, God, and, and now today, we are going to see God's faithfulness in protecting and growing and nourishing his people in the wilderness. And, and as, as, as these verses 7 through 17 pull back the curtains on the invisible war, the invisible warfare that is happening. And so one is expanded into the other, right? Verses one through six give sort of the, the big picture view. And then we get a bit of a, of, of a curtain pulled back and we see, oh, what was going on there? So let's read again, Revelation twelve seven through nine. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Is there a point being made? I think they were thrown down. They were removed and thrown down. You see, the war of the ages leads to a heavenly victory, which results in the relegation of Satan. Relegation is the idea that someone is demoted, someone is put down, someone is is taken out of place and and put in their proper position, right? So Satan and his demons are relegated. But I think it's interesting to note from the beginning that this battle that we read about is not between God and Satan. He's like, wait, what? Just a minute. No, look, it doesn't say, and God battled Satan. That would put Satan on the level with God. Does God need to battle Satan? One little word will fell him. Right? But Michael, the archangel, as seen as the protector of Israel through Scripture, does battle with him. And so Michael, one, you know, an archangel battles Satan, a fallen angel, in the battle of heaven. The battle of the ages. The unseen battle. Michael, the archangel, we see in, in Daniel 12.1, is spoken of in this role of a protector of Israel. At that time, Daniel 12.1 says, Shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, speaking to Israel, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. So we know that the who is involved in this. We've got Michael and his angels. We've got Satan and his demons. 
fighting against one another, but, but how is this heavenly battle waged? Good question. We don't know. We don't know exactly how it was waged, um, but we do know that Michael has confronted and battled with Satan through the ages. One such battle um, is referenced in the book of Jude. Jude one nine or Jude 9, for those of you that know Jude only has one chapter, says this, But when Michael, the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, something you don't read about in the Old Testament, we could, we'll not get sidetracked, but just to know that Scripture records that, that he did battle with him over the body, body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. In other words, Michael did not position himself above Satan, right? He didn't say, I curse you, right? He did not have that authority. Instead, he referenced the one who did have that authority, right? And he said, the Lord rebuke you. And too often we take in our day and age some level of silliness as we think of Satan, we sort of, you know, we talk about, if you just go peruse the internet for all kinds of stupidity when it comes to the rebukes that, that people give Satan, right? Any power that we have is through the Word of God and the Spirit of God because of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so there's no room for silliness with Satan. He is a real force and a deadly force, a destructive source, a force, a, de- a deceptive force angel, right? And we need to understand that our hope is rooted fully and firmly in Christ, His Word, and through the Holy Spirit. A couple of notes here, I think, that that we see that as the outcome of this battle, the deceiver of the whole world is thrown down. In that very little phrase, there's two things I think it's worth noting. First of all, the deceiver of the whole world. One of Satan's two, one of his primary forces, one of his primary tools or activities is that he is a deceiver. And as we think about that, and we've said this before, but if you're deceived, you don't know it. That's the whole, the, the whole point of being deceived. His modus operandi is to deceive, to lure everyone to live for their own desires, which ultimately leads to, Scripture tells us, death, rather than to live by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. If we are living according to our own heart, if we are living according to our own desires, then we are living according to the very system that Satan so desperately wants to deceive us into believing is what's best for us. He wants you to think, if I will but pursue my own desires, and find my happiness, then all will be well. And he says, oh, pursue it. Pursue it with everything within you. Be everything that you want to be, right? And in the end, he can't deliver on what's truly good. And in the end, we find the bite of death and destruction. So first of all, we see here that Satan, one of his primary activities is he is a deceiver. He would have us believe that we do not need Christ, nor His Spirit, nor His Word. We would, he would have us believe that we are enough. The great humanist philosophy. So that's one thing we see in this, that He is the deceiver of the whole world. 
But we also see that he's thrown down, that he is defeated. He's a deceiver that is defeated. And we'll see, though, that this is not his final defeat. He's been defeated more than once. And each one is he's gone down, down, down. And here again, we're going to we see that that triad of he is down, down, down. He was thrown out of heaven along with his angels when he rebelled and sought to be like the son of God. Right. To be like God. He was defeated when he sought to have. And I think Chris brought this out last week when he sought to have Jesus as a baby destroyed through Herod. He was defeated when he, he, he saw Christ on the cross and, and, and thought, it's won. And yet that was the greatest victory in human history as Christ rose from the dead. He has been defeated before. He's going to be defeated again before he finally, once and for all, will later be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. He cannot cannot oppose, or he can try to oppose, but he cannot defeat in any way the Lord Jesus. This language, as we think of this throwing down, the Jewish audience would have, and this is Jewish apocalyptic literature, the Jewish reader would have immediately thought, oh, I know what he's talking about. And they would have gone back to the original throwing down, being cast out of heaven. They would have been familiar with that. And yet, we're going to see here that there, this is not that. And I think that we can look to passages in the New Testament to help us see that this is a future event. Because Jesus referred to an, a future event that would correlate with this. Jesus in John 12:31 says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Hebrews 2, 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, the destroyer. That is a future thing that he's talking about, being cast out, being destroyed, not a backward look at the original rebellion. So you might be wondering, if Satan was cast out in the past, how can he be cast out again? How can he be thrown down again? Well, first of all, we know that since being cast out of heaven, Satan has no home, he has no position, he has no rank in heaven. He was removed from that, very ingloriously removed as he was cast out of heaven. But we know through, first of all, the book of Job, that Satan has permission to appeal to heaven. We don't know what that looks like. We immediately put it into our modern terms and think of a courtroom and we think of a judge sitting up behind a a physical bench, right? But remember, God is not limited in time, space, and location, right? Um, And so it's hard for us to imagine this. Satan is limited. He is limited in time, space, and location. He is not ever-present. He is not everywhere. So somehow God has chosen in his wisdom, to allow Satan to so to come with his accusations. Well, Satan is still accusing at this time. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is, at the time of John's writing, I think we get a clue that Satan is still doing this accusing thing. It's, it's a future thing, and he's not been stopped from doing it. 
It's another reason why we think this is a, a future event. Because there are some who would say this is, this is past. This, this all happened at the cross. Okay? But Satan continues to accuse. He is the, he is the accuser of the brethren. He's not, was the accuser of the brethren. And we're going to see very shortly that his accusations are going to come to an end. And we see it in this hymn in John, uh, or that John gives us from heaven in verses 10 through 12. We see that his opportunity to accuse has come to an end. Listen as I read along, read in verses 10 through 12. This is a hymn, sort of three choruses, if you will. And it says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven. That loud voice is often the, the, we don't know specifically who it is, but it's the crowd and the congregation. It's the, the people, the beast and everyone who surround the throne together proclaim this. And now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. Does that sound familiar to the last chapter? Chapter 11, when, when okay, now His authority has, and His kingdom have come. And, and then right on the heels of that, now we have this war that's being revealed, going on behind the scenes, if you will. So what happened there? For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. That is his present work that he is doing. He is accusing the brethren. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even until death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath. He was thrown down and he has arrived, if you will, he, at this point. Because he knows that his time is short. So in this heavenly hymn, we see there's good news and there's bad news. First, we see the good news. And in, this, in the good and bad news, we see that the victory brings rejoicing in heaven. But Satan's relegation will lead to a great tribulation on the earth. First, in, this, in our hymn, to, as we look at it, we see that the victory in the heavenly war becomes a victory in God's courtroom. Right? The war has now come into the courtroom and, and, and we find that Satan suffers another defeat there. So we, ca- we see that captured in verse 10. The accuser of the brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. In the presence of God, Satan is the accuser. When Jesus, the slain lamb, ascends to heaven's throne, as we see in chapter 11, the accuser descends, unceremoniously dumped down on earth. It's the moment anticipated in John 12:31 that we've already spoken of as Jesus looks to the cross and he says, now the prince of this world will be cast out. He's a, Satan is described as the accuser. He's already been described as the deceiver. One modus operandi. But he's also the accuser. He accuses the brethren before God. Now what is he doing? This is one place in which Satan is actually telling the truth. He's like, did you see them? Did you see that? Did you hear them? Did you, did you see what they did? That was sin. And you know the wages of sin is death, right? What are you going to do? You're going you're gonna to let that slide, holy God? 
He or she is a sinner and sinners are mine. And yet, and yet we find that the cross does not accuse. At the cross we are acquitted by the blood of Jesus Christ. People may accuse us. Satan definitely accuses us. Our conscience accuses us. But the cross does not condemn the cross is where we find victory. The, the place of that again Satan thought he had the greatest victory was his greatest defeat. And so we find that the truth that is that by the faith in the Lamb of God, our sin has been forgiven, covered by the blood of Christ. This is the only testimony that will stand the assaults of the accuser of the brethren. So on this day, as we read in Revelation 12, Satan will be thrown down, defeated in the courtroom, and his case thrown out with, as the court might say, eternal prejudice. In other words, it can't be brought back up again. God's not going to hear it anymore. I've had enough. It's done. You've had your, tr- your time to no avail. But it will be done once and for all. Whew. What about you? Do you feel the condemning weight of your sin? You shouldn't. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For in Christ, in Christ is the victory. But I don't know about you. But I know that I can remember sins I did as far back as a child. I can clearly remember things I did as a teenager. And let me tell you, Satan brings those things up time and time and time again. And we have the opportunity in those moments to either turn and give attention to his accusations or to turn and rest in the promises of God. And far too often, we begin to, to, to get into things like, well, that's a demonic influence, a demonic effect, and these things. Friend, stop focusing on that. Go to Ephesians chapter, chapter 6 and, and, and look at the appeal to put on the whole armor of God. And there, the appeal is not to focus on the demons and Satan. We're to resist the devil, but how are we to do it? The only offensive weapon we have is the word, sword of the Spirit. It is the word of God. And in that, it's not us getting, getting like, ah, oh, Satan, I got this to throw at you and this to throw at you. No, we have our faith. We stand firm in Christ. We hide in Him behind the shield. And the only hope that we have is through the truth of the Word of God. We turn to the Word of God, and in turning to the Word of God, He is resisted. Because we're not giving attention to, we're not giving focus to Him. We're giving attention and focus and worship and adoration to the Lord Jesus. And, and I know that this gets into all kinds of other things and I don't think we want to labor on this. But just consider, what would Satan have us do? To give attention to Him and His? To give attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, our victory is found in the blood of the Lamb. God's people have overcome by the blood of the Lamb, verse 11 tells us. They're radiant because they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 7.14 says. The only thing, 
as we've noted. The devil ever told the truth about the guilt of their sin has been removed. And so we find great rest in the words of Romans 8.33, which says, Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. This is the victory of faith which overcomes the ruler of this world. If you live according to the stuff of this world, if you live according to the modus operandi of this world, believing him and, or think that you can do it because, you know, I'm, I'm a church-going fella, right? I know a lot of scripture. Nah, it's faith in the word of God and in the person of God and in his power and in his ability to conquer. It's faith in him, not faith in you. Well, what is the evidence of the faith of those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, who have, who have found, who are, who have appealed to Christ for their salvation? What's the evidence? Because in a courtroom, it's one thing to claim something, but there's been more than claiming happen here because they have conquered, right? And the accuser has been thrown out of the courtroom. What was the evidence? The evidence was their testimony. The very lives of those that Satan accuses are testimony against him. They did not love their lives unto death, it says. Instead, they lived not for the temporal kingdom, this life, but they lived for the eternal kingdom, not the kingdom of this world. Jesus spoke to his disciples about living this way. In Luke 14, 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father his mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In other words, these ones who have placed their hope, their faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ to cover their guilt, it has transformed them. It has changed them from being dominated and ruled by their own desires, but to submit to the authority and kingship of the Lord Jesus. said, it's not my life. My life is yours. This is not only true in that day, in the years ahead, but it's true now. It's not only going to be true in that great tribulation when, when we think at that time of great testing and trial, when Satan is cast down and when, when he is focused so hard on the people of this world because his other means, his accusing means, has gone by the wayside. But it's true now. It's true today. It's true not only for those who are martyrs, who truly live and give their life at the edge of a sword or, or are taken out by some government because they they would purpose to stand up for Christ. It's true and the opportunity is true for every believer who refuses to live according to his own desires and unto the Lord. To give their lives. It shows up in how they raise their children for they are not their own. And how they use their money for it belongs to God. And how they view their home and their possessions. It is the Lord's. How they spend their time, their work, their recreation, their retirement. I am the Lord's, they would say. My whole life is the Lord's from beginning to end until death. I am the Lord's. We love not our lives unto death. 
this victory, this kind of living, this kind of testimony is only possible through faith and submission to Christ. And it's through that that we agree with what Paul said in verse, in 1 Corinthians 15, 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've got the deceiver who has been thrown down. You've got the accuser who's been thrown out. And what does this mean for the church? What does this mean for the, for the remaining believers in that day? Well, what does it mean for the people on earth? On one hand, for those in heaven, it's a cause for celebration. Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But we see then the warning, right? Woe to those on earth, on the earth and sea. Yes, King Jesus is enthroned. A decisive victory in the heavens has been achieved. And Satan has been thrown down, yet his sentence is not complete. And we're not talking about finishing the sentence for one another. We're talking about his eternal damnation, his sentence, is not done, is not fulfilled. But given no place to accuse, Satan doubles down. And he takes on all that he's got left. He's going to renew his effort to deceive and destroy. And so in verse 13 we read, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth. In other words, he saw it. He couldn't help it. There was nothing he could do. His no resistance was going to keep him from being thrown down. It was done to him. He's put in his proper place. What did he do? He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. With the return to this title for Satan, the dragon, we are reminded to go back up to verse 6. Because in verse 6, that title was used for him. And what was he doing there in verse 6? He was pursuing the woman. And where did she go? A little test for you, a little pop quiz. Where did she go? The wilderness. If you were here last week, or if you have a Bible in front of you, you can see it right there, right? So we saw that, that Satan pursued the woman, the people of God, specifically, believe the people of Israel, into the wilderness. In verses 13 through 17, we see that the persecution of the people of God will be but, a, but the desperate efforts of the doomed receiver, deceiver. I like how John MacArthur put, puts this. He says, Satan's battle plan for the earthly phase of the war of the ages is brutally simple. To eliminate all those who serve God, if he could, he would kill them all. If not that, he would destroy their faith, if that were possible. If the devil were able to rid the earth of all those who serve God, he would achieve his goal of unifying the entire world under his rule. But his efforts are and will continue to be thwarted by God himself. And that's what we see in these verses. We see in verse 14, but the woman, but the woman, right? Satan does what he does. He's, he's after him, but the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. I think it's at this point that I'm supposed to say, who's up next week? You are? That's well, kick the can on down. No, I can't do that. Chris did that to me last week, so I just thought maybe it was possible um, to do it again. But time, times, and half a time. And this is good news. 
Time, times, and half a time is actually very good news. Because it's only time, times, and half a time. Or, as verse 6 says, 1,260 days. So further building back on this, this verse 6, we find a couple of things. We'll look at the time, times, and half a time in a moment. But first of all, we see that wings allow the woman to fly. Fly to a place in the wilderness which is prepared by God. You see, the woman is given eagle's wings. And, and that's a little confusing. And this is where, do we take it literally? Is she given wings? Is she, you know, is it, and oh, this is where we ought to start talking about airplanes, right? Because they didn't have airplanes then. And so now we're going to, no, let's, we don't know that. And so let's go with what we do know. And what we do know is the picture of eagle's wings from Exodus on is a picture of God's rescue. Clear. It's, just, it's throughout Scripture. Two examples of it. First of all, beginning with the Exodus, in the book of Exodus, verse 9, chapter 19, verse 4, it says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. We're more familiar with the passage in Isaiah 40, verse 31. One that you may have on your wall, maybe your bathroom wall, maybe your office, maybe in your kitchen, where it says, But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So we have this picture, this Jewish motif that goes to rescue God is going to rescue his people, the people of Israel. So the question I have is, why fly to the wilderness? And you're like, we did this already. Chris covered this last week, right? Well, as Chris noted last week, it is a place of dependence on God's provision. But it's also a place of refuge. It's a place of safety. A place safe from harm. Well, we don't know the details of that, but we know that he will do it. We can be assured that God not only is a refuge for his people in this time, but God is a refuge for us today. We can have that hope. We can have that confidence that if he will even be doing it then, when Satan has doubled down on his efforts, would he not protect his people now? You can appeal to the the, the promises of Scripture throughout. In keeping with Satan's knowledge that his time is short, we read that the woman is nourished in this wilderness for time, times, and half a times. Realize this is the only place in Revelation where this phrase is used. In verse 6, we see the period identified as the 1,260 days. Well, some people, and, I, and, and again, we have all kinds of, of eschatologies, if you will, views of the future right here, sitting with us right here today, believe it or not, right? And, and that's, that's fine, because these are hard things to understand. And, and depending on your, how you interpret Scripture and understand Scripture, there are some ways it comes out. The beautiful thing is I've been with different ones in this congregation that have some of these different eschatologies. It's really cool. One thing's true of, of everybody I know that's talked about this here. We agree in the end that, that the Lord Jesus Christ returns, that he conquers, and that he will rule forever and ever and ever and ever, right? And Satan will be defeated forever and ever and ever. And that's a beautiful thing. 
But as we see this, there are, there are those that look at this as not a specific three and a half years or 1,260 days, but as a, just a set time. In other words, as you would think of the number 12 as being a number of completion or fullness or whatever, or the number seven is, is it's done. Well, this, this is one that says, okay, God set a time. We don't know when it is, don't know how long it is. I, 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 those who, who see it, um, as a as that would would that's fine, okay. You could make that case. I believe that. I believe that it's a set time. I happen to believe that it's a set time of three and a half years, okay. Like it, the time, time and a half of time, one thousand two hundred and sixty days. But don't worry, no no elder or deacon is going to come knocking at your door if you see that differently. All right. But I see this, and I and and we can see that it is a set time, and I think that's a blessing from God that the time is short. And Satan sees it clearly as something where God is um, where God is limiting him. But I see that as what we would call the great tribulation. All right. This reference directly refers back to Daniel seven twenty five, and then. Daniel 12:7 and refers to the last days in which the saints will be as Daniel says handed over to the little horn which will oppress them. They'll be oppressed through persecution yet nourished spiritually by God, not only nourished but protected from the face of the serpent, meaning the presence of the serpent. God in this wilderness, God in this place will protect and sustain his people. Satan may be able to bring harm, but he will not be able to defeat them. We read of this continued attack in verses 15 through 16. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon poured from his mouth. Satan's not done. He doubles down with a torrent described like a water like a river and a flood. See, here we see this image of flood as to describe persecution. We see it in Psalm 18, verse 4, torrents of destruction. Psalm 32, 6, when the might when the mighty rivers rise, Psalm 69.2, the floods engulf me. And Isaiah 43.2, when you pass through the waters. He says, I will be with you. Now, we can go again. You want to talk about different views. The preterist brothers and sisters in Christ would say this happened in 68 AD um, before the destruction of Jerusalem when the, the Jordan River rose. Well, I, I personally believe this was written after that. This was written in AD 90. And I, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't see it that. But that's, that's where some would, would say that's, that happened then. I think we, if we understand um, this, we'll see that it is a flood. Much as we saw the eagle's, eagle's wings, we see also here that it is a, a direct reference to Satan's destructive river. And how does he do that? How does he do it? He pours on the deceit and destruction, I believe, like a mighty, deadly river. And I say I believe because I refer back to Jesus. And Jesus um, refers to Satan's use of lies and deceit in Matthew 24, 24, talking about in times false signs and wonders that might deceive even the elect, if possible. He is going to bring on destruction if he could. Second Thessalonians talks about it. 
looking for counterfeit miracles. Revelation 13 and 16, we're going to see it when the miraculous signs of the false prophets. But again, God has the answer. Every time Satan throws something, God has the answer. Jewish believers would have thought of this earth swallowing up this torrent, this flood, by something that happened in the Old Testament. You see, there was a rebellion that broke out among the sons of Korah. And what happened to those individuals who took part in that that effort to get the people of God to worship like you want to? Bring your strange fire into the presence of God. What happens? The earth opens up and swallows them up. And that rebellion is done. Earth ended it. And isn't it ironic that Satan is cast down to earth and he is the prince of the power of the air. He rules in his way, in his limited fashion, over this earth. And the very earth over which he rules opens up and ends his torrent of deceit and destruction. See, no matter what comes, friend, no matter who's in the White House, no matter who's, what's going on in your world of, of whether it's it, it, you're thrown in jail for st- standing up for Christ, no matter whether people are being martyred around the world, no matter what, in the end, what's the worst that's going to happen to us? Death has been swallowed up in victory. Our hope is filled in Christ. And, and the worst thing that can be done to us is to remove us immediately, in a sense, remove us immediately, and we're in the presence of God. Satan doesn't have an answer. All he can do is make his efforts. And, and so as we think on these things, the, we have to understand that Satan is limited. Let's give our attention, our time, our consideration to the power and wonder and glory and promises of God. So finally we read in Revelation 12:17 Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus and he stood on the sand of the sea And here we see Satan the ancient dragon giving attention to the rest of her offspring So who are who's the original offspring Christ Right? We saw that last time. That was the firstborn among many brethren. And now we have the, the rest of her children. Well, who are the rest of her children? It, coming out of because of Christ, the rest of the children would be, I believe, based on Scripture, what we're going to read shortly, is us. Who are those offspring? Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Is there a better description? For who we are as believers, those who hold to the testimony of Jesus and keep the commandments of God. Well, who would those people be? Well, if you believe that the, that there was the rapture at the beginning, who, there wouldn't be any believers around. There would be those who come to Christ during this tribulation period. If you don't believe in that rapture, if you believe it's a post, you know, post-tribulational rapture, then it's the believers. Right? One way or another, you've got believers here. And who is Satan going after? Well, he tried to destroy the, the nation of Israel, those that God called his people, because he's against everything God is for. Then having not destroyed them, he's going to go double down on the 
church of God. But why is this? Why is the practice and testimony of the believer so repulsive and infuriating to Satan? Well, he's against God. Okay. Well, because they don't live according to his kingdom. According to, they don't buy into his deception, but by the truth of the word of God. And he is an arrogant angel. That's what got him in trouble in the first place. I will be like God. And he can't stand the thought that, that these ones could stand against his deception. And because they don't worship him, but they worship Jesus Christ as their Lord and King. Satan is going to bring every bit of destruction, pain, and misery on the world. And so, in this time, as in our time, we're called to love love Christ more than our lives. So today we've seen that Satan is the accuser, the great deceiver who is bent on destruction. Christ came to give life. What kingdom do you live for? Do you see Satan for what he really is? A doomed deceiver? Do you see him as that? Or do you see him as, it's no thing for me. I'm just living my life. It's kind of weird that we're in here talking about Satan and all these things. It's, you think of him as, as, a, as something you might see in a movie. Something you might see in a cartoon. And yet, the reality is this. What we live in submission to tells us very much about what kingdom we're living for. This passage is clearly looking forward to a, a horrific time. But it ought to cause us to live in both holiness, keeping the commands of God, and hope, living in confident assurance of Christ's promises during our time. And our conclusion should be this. We should be sober-minded as we persevere in confident, dependent assurance. Because no matter the dark forces at play behind the scenes, and we can be assured they're going on, we're told that they're going on, our hope isn't ultimately to be engaged back there. We've got, we've got our lives to live. Let Michael and his angels do his part. right? Let us instead live godly, holy lives bent on the hope of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 5, 8-11 says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. How? Firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not the only one, in other words. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. In other words, he's already called you. It's a done deal. Will, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. No matter how horrific the endurance must be in this life, in the end you'll hear, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter you into the joys of the Lord forevermore. It is personal. Do you hear that personal name? Jesus Christ himself 
will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's the hope. That's the promise. We all like to study prophecy because we like to get into, well, I, you saw what went on over in Yemen this week, right? You know, you see what you, the, the Houthi rebels and you see what they're doing. You see what's going on in Gaza and, and, and how that's fine. That, those are conversations worth having. But that's not where our focus needs to be. Our focus needs to be squarely and firmly fixed upon Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. So let's not be distracted. Let's by the deceiver who would have us focus on everything but the surety that we have in Jesus Christ. The confidence that we can have in Jesus Christ to be able to persevere knowing that in the end, he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. Why? Because his dominion is forever and ever and ever. Until that day, we have the privilege of reminding one another that he has conquered through his shed blood and that we are looking forward to the hope of his return, his victorious return. And we do that through communion because it's through communion that we are in Christ and have that hope and assurance and forgiveness of sins. And so today we will be celebrating our our communion again together. And don't we need to do that together? There's a reason we don't do communion just by ourselves. And it can be a good reminder to go and practice that alone. But I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded that, hey, I'm not in this alone. Right? This is not a battle that I'm facing alone. But it is a battle I'm in with my brothers and sisters in Christ. So... The music will play shortly and we'll have the elements are available both down front and right back here. If you're a believer, we invite you to participate with us. You can pick up the elements at any one of these tables. Once the music begins and our elders will be at these tables, get them uncovered. You come down and take both a a set of cups, one below and one above with the elements, and then go back to your seat. And in a moment, after a bit, we will all, when everyone's seated, we'll celebrate this together. We encourage you to take that time while you're in your seat to use it to confess, to remember, and to give thanks. So at this time, I'd ask our elders to come into place and I'll pray and we'll we'll celebrate together. Our gracious Father, Lord, we give you thanks for the sacrifice of your dear Son. It is your blood in which we have been cleansed and our robes made spotless and white and that we can come into your presence and that we together are made right. And it's because of that being made right before God that I pray that we would seek to be made right with one another, that we would hold no grudge, that we would have no offense and that, Lord, if if there is that going on, that we would seek to make those things right even now. Lord, we're grateful that in Christ we have fellowship with the Trinity and we have fellowship with one another, with the saints, those who've been washed and forgiven, those who love the Word and who remind us to live for the kingdom while we're surrounded by this kingdom of this age. Lord, finally, we pray for your blessing upon this time. May you 
Help us to think and reflect upon the gracious goodness and love that we have in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.